And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no Air Force censorship. This is Encounter 401. You can't say that on TV. We're starting the fourth batch of episodes, and there's a linking theme to them, or at least I think there will be when we're done. That theme is this. There were ways that the saucer life bled into more mundane areas of life and affected individuals' lives in ways that, perhaps, demonstrate the dangers of getting too far into the whole flying saucer thing. Today, we're going to look at one particular example of the relationship between flying saucers and the broadcast media during the 1950s. And our focal point for this is Donald Kehoe's appearance on the Armstrong Circle Theater in January 1958. We should start with Donald Kehoe. We've mentioned him a bit here and there over the last five months, and this is probably going to be the closest we get to an episode completely devoted to him, so here's the lowdown. Several national flying saucer investigation organizations rose to prominence in the 1950s and continued to grow into the 1960s. These outfits had a much less sensational, much more scientific or pseudo-scientific approach than the contactees or more spiritualist-oriented groups like the Borderlands Science Research Associates. We've met Coral Lorenzen and her group APRO, and now we're going to discuss NICAP. Clara L. John and T. Townsend Brown founded the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomenon in August of 1956. The group's stated goal was to, quote, direct a united scientific investigation of aerial phenomena, unquote. From its very beginning, then, NICAP aimed to be as serious as possible about the saucer question. Its board of directors included retired generals and admirals, physicists, and freelance saucer writer Donald Kehoe. Born in 1897, Kehoe served as a Marine Corps pilot until an injury forced his retirement in 1923. He began writing, including writing for everything like straight feature writing in magazines like Reader's Digest and The Nation, to adventure stories for pulp mags like Weird Tales. His day job, however, was with the federal government. In 1927, for example, while working as the chief of information for the U.S. Department of Commerce, he was the official government envoy accompanying Charles Lindbergh on the nationwide tour following his historic transatlantic flight. During the 1930s and 40s, after leaving the Commerce Department, he became a freelance aviation writer. Kehoe's first foray into the saucer life was an article in the January 1950 issue of True Magazine, entitled, The Flying Saucers Are Real. Kehoe soon expanded this article into a 1953 book, Flying Saucers from Outer Space. This in-depth book firmly established Kehoe with the public as an authority on flying saucers. In this early work, Kehoe's focus was on citing reports and hypothesizing on possible reasons for the saucer's visits. Unlike many saucer writers, Kehoe had a great deal of experience in both the military and the federal government, as well as aviation. This experience and the fact that he always used his full title of Major Donald E. Kehoe, USMC Retired, on his books, lent Kehoe at least a superficial credibility that a lot of other writers didn't have. 
By early 1956, Kehoe had sort of staged a palace coup and taken control of NICAP, changing its focus a bit. No longer would the organization concentrate solely on cataloging individual saucer sightings. Rather, NICAP would focus on pressuring Congress to hold open hearings on the saucer problem, and in doing so, force the U.S. Air Force to release secret documents about the saucers, which Kehoe was convinced existed. Kehoe's insistence that the government of the United States concealed information about flying saucers from the eyes of the public was a constant in his writings from the very beginning. While he did claim the cover-up existed, he was careful not to attribute malicious motives to the conspirators, at least initially. In his foreword to 1955's The Flying Saucer Conspiracy, he addressed this. In revealing the censorship, I am not attacking the Air Force as a whole. Most of the officers and officials I've encountered are simply obeying orders. Nor do I attribute unpatriotic motives to the silence group members who originate these orders. Undoubtedly, they are actuated by a high motive. The need, as they see it, to protect the public from possible hysteria. If the public is not informed of the facts, fear of the unknown may prevail. Despite these noble motives, Kehoe considered the cover-up dangerous to the United States. Continual denial, he wrote, quote, only heightens the possibility of hysteria. Thus, with this reasoning, Kehoe both acknowledged appropriate motives on the part of the conspirators and argued that continued secrecy would do more harm than good. Openness on the part of the government, he believed, would not cause hysteria. Rather, Openness would reassure Americans that their government was, in fact, in control of the situation. As we saw with the Robertson panel report, however, this view on openness was not shared by many elements of the government. At the heart of Kehoe's claims throughout the 50s was the assumption that, the Air, that Air Force officials had standing orders that restricted the kinds of information on saucers that officials could release to the public, and that only innocuous easily dismissible cases such as hoaxes should be discussed publicly. Um, this was referred to as Air Force Regulation 200-2. Kehoe considered this as being, quote, a revelation in its apparent distrust of the American people, end quote. The cover-up, he claimed, took the form not only of these denials of saucer sightings, but of outright censorship. One incident that the Flying Saucer Conspiracy detailed was that of NICAP board member Frank Edwards, who we met a few months ago. But to refresh your memory, Edwards was a prominent radio and print journalist who worked as a news commentator for the American Federation of Labor, back when labor unions hired newsmen to report news. During the summer of 1954, Edwards had persuaded AFL President George Meany to let him broadcast a nationwide special on the existence of Air Force Regulation 200-2 and to report on some extraordinary sightings that began in Wilmington, Delaware and had spread across the country. Kehoe and Edwards both felt that this report would force the Air Force to reveal the hidden details about the saucers. But a few days before the broadcast, Edwards called Kehoe and informed him that George Meany had ordered Edwards to scrap all mention of saucers and told him there would be a censor in the studio prepared to end the broadcast if Edwards failed to comply. He resigned rather than go on the air under those conditions. Edwards discussed this and other instances of censorship in his first book, Flying Saucers, Serious Business. In a chapter entitled Muzzles for Americans, Edwards acknowledged that the government might have had good reasons for saucer censorship, 
but he also charged that such censorship was not confined to the realm of UFOs, that any, quote, falsification was all right if the results were good. Edwards then went even farther. It was simply another way of repeating the old Nazi line that it's all right to lie to the public if it's for their own good. Whether it was justified would be decided by those who did the lying, of course. Kehoe, who certainly opposed saucer censorship, never went so far as to compare the government to the Nazis. Both men, however, agreed that the perceived government cover-up of saucer information was dangerous. Frank Edwards was on the NICAP board, and Kehoe featured him prominently in all his books throughout the 50s and 60s, so Edwards' views on government censorship couldn't have varied too much from the NICAP party line, which pretty much reflected Kehoe's ideas. Edwards' comments, like Kehoe's, framed the question of flying saucers in a political context rather than a scientific or spiritual one. Establishing a political framework for UFO secrecy would, in later years, serve to give Kehoe and NICAP a visible, high-profile adversary, making their quest more accessible to the public. You need a villain, don't you? And since we don't know enough about the flying saucers, we can't say they're a villain, necessarily. But the heroes need the bad guys, and, and the Air Force and, and later the CIA would serve as, as pretty adequate bad guys. And, and while the contactees' stories and viewpoints, for example, pushed back against this looming threat of nuclear war, Kehoe's efforts, to a degree, focused on other areas of the Cold War milieu. Government secrecy was certainly not confined to the subject of flying saucers, but as with contactees' concerns about issues of war and peace, Discussing flying saucers could serve as a relatively benign entry point for discussing concerns about the increasing role of secretive government entities. Um, for Kehoe, initially, it was the Air Force that was holding its cards too close to the vest. Later on, as we get into the late 50s and early 60s, he would start to point to the Central Intelligence Agency, a distinctly Cold War entity, a bit more so than the Air Force, which at least had existed in previous forms as the Army Air Corps and things. The CIA was a Cold War creation, and Kehoe shifts his focus to that entity later on. But for the moment, in, in 57, 58, the Air Force is still uh, the real bad guy. He had experiences that reinforced this belief that the Air Force was the bad guy, and the one that inspired the title of this episode occurred on January 22nd, 1958. Kehoe was scheduled to appear on an installment of the CBS network's Armstrong's Circle Theater. Now, I've got to say, nobody anywhere that I've seen actually puts the apostrophe S at the end of Armstrong's Circle Theater. It's called this because it was sponsored by the Armstrong Court Company, so it's Armstrong's Circle Theater. Everywhere you see it, it's probably going to be Armstrong Circle Theater, but that's not necessarily how it was really supposed to be. That was a really sort of boring, grammatical aside, but it was bugging me. Anyway, this installment of Armstrong's Circle Theater was to feature Kehoe along with saucer skeptic Donald Menzel and a representative from the Air Force. And from the very beginning, there was conflict among the parties about how this was going to be put together. The Air Force, apparently, vetoed any notion of a sort of debate or panel discussion format. They wanted a scripted format with each viewpoint on the saucers, the Air Force's investigations, Menzel's dismissal, and Kehoe's accusation that there was more going on than either of the other guys thought. They would each be scripted out and presented separately. There wasn't going to be any sort of CNN 
crossfire wolf blitzer style action going on. The Air Force had a very heavy hand in the script as well. Uh, Kehoe claimed that he only received seven minutes of airtime. The Air Force received 25. And Kehoe was required to clear his comments with the producers and the Air Force before he was allowed on the air. Kehoe's script went through several revisions before producers cleared it for broadcast, and Kehoe would assert that the Air Force was behind these revisions. During the broadcast, which went out live, Kehoe deviated from the approved script, apparently. Consequently, the producer briefly cut the audio levels. The response from the public to the audio being cut was immediate, and CBS went into damage control mode, answering letters from the public. One example of this is a, a January 31, 1958 letter responding to a viewer concern about the censorship. And uh, Herbert Karlborg, the director of editing for CBS, had to respond. This program had been carefully cleared for security reasons. Therefore, it was the responsibility of this network to ensure performance in accordance with predetermined security standards. Any indication that there would be a deviation might lead to statements that neither this network nor the individuals on the program were authorized to release. As a consequence, public interest was served by the action taken by CBS in deleting the audio in Major Kehoe's speech at a point where he apparently was about to deviate from the script. For his part, Kehoe issued a statement both to CBS and to the Armstrong Cork Company explaining from his perspective what had happened. Due to a misunderstanding on my part about rules of approval on script changes, it was necessary for Armstrong Circle Theater and CBS to interrupt a statement I was about to make. While I mentioned it to one or two persons connected with the program, I had not discussed it with the director or producer or any representative of CBS. Certain minor ad-lib changes which I had made had been allowed, and on that basis I had assumed that the deleted statement would not be contrary to the program rules. Since then, I have been told that CBS continuity has to approve extreme departures from scripts. Therefore, the producer and director had no alternative but to order audio cutoff since they had no idea of what I was about to say. With regard to this incident, longtime Kehoe associate Richard Hall, writing in 2005, came to the following conclusion. One can only conclude that Major Kehoe's credibility was such that someone feared a panic. Certainly, the notion that one man's opinion would somehow violate national security or cause any sort of panic among a public eager for more information about UFOs seemed very strange at the time and makes no more sense in retrospect. To say that's the only conclusion one could draw is questionable, I think. And the reason I think that's questionable is the nature of what Kehoe actually said and what was actually censored, as well as the way Kehoe spun this censorship to NICAP members and the public. The question is this. Exactly what was censored and what was not? According to Richard Hall, a week or so after the broadcast, Kehoe sent a letter to NICAP members informing them of pay attention to Hall's wording here, quote, what he was about to say when he was cut off the air, end quote. In that letter, Kehoe reported that this is what he was about to say when he was cut off the air. In the last six months, we have been working with a Senate committee investigating official secrecy on unidentified flying objects. If open hearings are held, I feel it will prove beyond doubt that the flying saucers are real machines under intelligent control. However, 
In his 1960 book, Flying Saucers, Top Secret, Kehoe reported the redacted ad-libbing as being the following. For the last six months, we have been working with the Congressional Committee investigating official secrecy about UFOs. If all the evidence we have given this committee is made public in open hearings, it will absolutely prove that the UFOs are real machines under intelligent control. So, which of these did Kehoe really say when he was ominously silenced by the evil government forces that were controlling the good people of the Columbia Broadcasting System? Because those two statements aren't the same. It's a subtle difference, and a few months ago I I read some stuff from some associates that made me look at it again leading to this episode. In the letter sent out to NICAP members, there's no mention of the, quote, evidence that NICAP had. That detail shows up in the 1960 book. So right there is a discrepancy in Kehoe's recollection. It gets better. Or worse, you pick. We have an advantage that people in the 50s did not. We can rewatch, or in this case, re-listen to what was broadcast in 1958. We can hear exactly what Kehoe said and what the television audience heard. Here it is. For the last six months, our committee has been working with a Senate committee which is investigating official secrecy on UFOs. If the hearings are held, open hearings, I feel it will prove beyond doubt that the flying saucers are real. In order to secure the information we need, we suggest that all of the citizens in the city's rights. Thank you, Major Kehoe. That may actually be the least impressive censoring job, least sensational censoring job I've ever heard. What exactly that Kehoe said was silenced by the silence group was actually silenced. He mentioned they were talking to a committee, they wanted open hearings, that it would prove the reality of UFOs. Even when it fades out, it's not completely faded out. And it sounds like uh, the part that was faded out the most severely was some sort of appeal for people to write to somebody. Remember what Hall wrote? Hall, like Kehoe, implied, well, not implied, outright said, that Kehoe was about to say what we just heard when he was silenced. To top it off, there was no mention of the evidence that Kehoe claimed that he used in the 1960 retelling of the story. Further, Think back to that letter from Mr. Carl Borg, the editor, explaining that they had cut the audio, quote, at the point where he apparently was about to deviate from the script. What this means, I think, is that everything before that audio cut that we heard was not simply uncensored, but perhaps had been approved in the first place. So why would Kehoe lie? Was he lying, or did he simply not know exactly what was censored and so assumed it all was? I can't believe this was the case. Certainly, he would have heard a tape. If not immediately, then probably before he rewrote the story for Flying Saucer's Top Secret. I mean, we've just heard a tape, and this is 60 years after the fact. Actually, almost exactly 60 years after the fact. He didn't hear a tape. He didn't know what had been silenced. Nobody had access to that. Whatever. I don't believe it. Certainly, he would have heard a tape. But even if he had heard a tape, he knew that unless the public had been watching on January 22nd, 
or they knew somebody who held a mic up to the TV speaker and recorded that live program on reel-to-reel tape, they wouldn't have heard it. And even if they heard it, they probably didn't remember every word and every detail. He could tell the public his preferred version of the truth. After all, CBS had acknowledged they cut the audio. There's clearly a cover-up. And the Air Force, which Kehoe had convincingly portrayed as using a heavy hand in editing the approved script for the program, was easily provable as being responsible for this cover-up of the truth. And the notion of an Air Force cover-up was NICAP's bread and butter. Their calls for open congressional hearings on UFOs would become ever more strident. And without the Air Force being there as a foil, stopping them at every step, I mean, what was the, what was the holdup on investigations unless somebody was stymieing their efforts? The Air Force played that role. When there were objections to hearings, Kehoe and his cohorts could point to the Armstrong Circle Theater incident as a clear example of the military and intelligence community's desperation to keep the public from knowing the truth. This conspiratorial, cover-up-oriented viewpoint was buoyed by the revelations of Edward Ruppelt, who first broke the news of the Robertson panel, as we heard the other week. The contactees were discussing the machinations of the silence group. Gray Barker's Men in Black were on the scene. But more, I think, than anything else at the time, Kehoe's promotion of a cover-up solidified the idea as, a, as the dominant paradigm, paradigm that continues to this day. Hall closed his 2005 account of this incident with the following. A very wrong-headed official policy, which NICAP was fighting to change by exposing it to public scrutiny, sought to totally control a public discussion of the facts and issues. Thanks to Major Kehoe's courage and determination, the policy backfired badly in this case. Yeah, courage, determination, and manipulation. The Air Force isn't the only entity that can mislead the public. Sometimes flying saucer organizations can do that just as well. Donald Kehoe became the patron saint of the crusade against the cover-up, using stories like this to ensure that his saucer life would be forever commemorated by those who think all of this is as simple as the government lying about things in the sky. His and NICAP's reductionism, confining the study of flying saucer phenomenon to the investigation of sightings and government suppression of the truth of these sightings, all the while avoiding stories about saucer occupants, contacts, and most of the other really cool, weird stuff, would eventually lead to an official government-sponsored and government-funded investigation. They would get something that was very close to what they had asked for. As we'll see in a few episodes, in The Saucer Life, you really need to be careful what you ask for. In our next encounter, it's the end of the world as we know it. Hopefully we'll all feel fine. Thank you this time to Wendy Connor's Faded Disc Archive, now hosted at archive.org, to the mysterious LM, a member of one of the many, many secret cabals with which I'm associated, for smartening me up to the slight but significant discrepancies between Kehoe's statements and his book, the letter to NICAP members, and of course, the actual audio. Thanks as well to the NICAP.org website, which houses the Richard Hall article I cited and the CBS response to the viewer complaint about censoring Major Kehoe. You can follow along with us at saucerlife.com and on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to The Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. The Saucer Life is written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, 
keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you.